Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, I've really enjoyed drone flying. Uh, if you've, you've probably seen me flying it here and there, I've flown it for upward and things like that. And I, I've really in, enjoyed it. And um, before I ever flew the first time, I, I had to ask a question. What do I need to know in order to, to play with this, uh, this very grown-up toy? Well, it turns out, you'd be happy to know, there are laws governing uh, drone flying. It's not something you can't just go to the store and buy one. And I mean, there's things you need to know. There's laws that you need to follow. Uh, did you know that if you have a drone that weighs more than 250 grams, you have to register it with the FAA? You have to put a, you have to put a, a license number on it and all kinds of stuff. And so I went and bought a drone that was 249 grams so that I wouldn't have to register it with the FAA. So if I crashed it, they couldn't find me. Um, and honestly, it's fine for what I do. It takes great pictures. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles of some of the larger ones. I've got a friend who's got a much larger drone. And, uh, but what I've got is really fun to fly, and it's uh, great pictures, great video. Um, now, there's some basic rules you need to know. One is you're not allowed to fly the drone out of eyesight, which is interesting because these things have got like multiple mile ra- uh, ranges, and so I'm not sure how you're supposed to do that. Um, you're also not supposed to go over 400 feet off the ground or 400 feet off whatever the closest structure is. And so if you were at a, one of these 1,000-foot radio antennas, you could go 400 feet above that antenna. But if you're out in the middle of a field, you can only go 400 feet above the field. If you're on the bluff here at Lookout Mountain, you can go 400 feet up. But if you go out, you got to be mindful of the distance to the, the closest point of ground. And that's something that, that you got to know. Uh, did you know that uh, there are no fly zones like national parks? You're not allowed to go over the battlefield and fly a drone. So, uh, so if you want to go over and look for deer in the field, you can't fly a drone to do that. Uh, you can't fly a drone in the vicinity of airports. I don't know why. That's a silly law. Um, uh, if you are a, high, a football coach or something, you're not allowed to use a drone to film uh, sporting events. And so you can't just park a drone. You're not supposed to park a drone over a football game and film the game. And then you got all kinds of local laws and regulations and things like that that you got to pay attention to. But then there's just common sense rules, things that you just need to know. For instance, I shouldn't park my drone so, I, so it looks like I'm looking into my neighbor's backyard. It's just, just probably good. Shouldn't do that. Um, we had a drone flying around our house one day, and, uh, and it felt like it was circling around the swimming pool. And... Uh, and I thought, who in the world is spying into our swimming pool, right? I mean, that's, I was about to get the shotgun out and, and, uh, and, and eliminate it. And it uh, turns out the neighbors were selling their house, and it was a realtor that was taking some pictures. But it looked like he was spying on us for sure. Um, I shouldn't fly over crowds of people. I should, you know, if it crashes, it could hurt somebody. But, um, but one of the things I learned really early on is that if you want to do anything remotely commercial, like if you wanted to go out and take pictures of a house for a real estate agent, you had to, you got to get a license. Getting that license is pretty complex. There's, you got to go and take a study course. You got to take a real complicated test with the FAA. You got to know things about weather and you got to know things about air, uh, you know, like uh, air traffic and things like that. And it's like getting a, it's like getting a pilot's license, except you don't actually get to get to fly an airplane. And so the basic rules that I knew when I looked at that, they, they were taken to a whole new level when I thought about what it would take to actually get a license. And the majority of you were sitting here thinking, hey, Pastor, I don't really care. <laughs> That's my point. 
That's exactly my point. Because these rules don't affect you on a daily basis. They don't affect your life on a daily basis. It's information that, quite honestly, you really just don't need to know. Unless you actually enjoy flying drones. What do you need to know, though? When it comes to the expression of our Christian faith, there's a place you ought to ask the question. What do I need to know? The information I just shared with you, you don't need to know. But when it comes down to our faith and the expression of our faith, what are the things that I, I really need to, to know? What's that information that I really need to pay attention to? We turn our attention to Acts chapter 15, and, and the early church is trying to answer that question. What do we need to know. In the expression of our Christian faith, what are those things that are, are non-negotiable? What are those things that we have to have our, 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 our grasp on? Well, here we are in the context. The first missionary journey has been completed. Paul and Barnabas are back at Antioch. There's now churches in Gentile lands, and the church in this first century has now become this cosmopolitan blend of Jewish and Gentile believers, people from different cultures coming together under one banner, the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you've been in church any length of time, you know that Jews and Gentiles are a couple different groups of people. So how in the world do Jews and Gentiles who don't see eye to eye on much, how do they actually get along under the gospel? How do they actually get along in the church together? And that's today what I want us to consider. What are those things that we need to know to help us get along with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to make the church function like she needs to? So let's see how the church determines what makes the list of the things that we need to know. I'd invite you to turn your attention to Acts chapter 15 this morning. And once you've gotten your uh, place and you're able to stand with me, please stand as we uh, read God's word here from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no dissension or had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his, for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of the church. I ask God that you would help us now to apply that same wisdom today, that we might be a church united as men and women saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As you have read through the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, it's very evident that a conflict was beginning to brew. At first, it was simply the manifestation of Jewish opposition to the gospel. A, a, a new word was being proclaimed. The Jews were opposed to this new gospel. And so you had this external pressure that was building there in the church, but there was also internal pressure that was beginning to grow from this Jewish faction within the church. The conflict is introduced in its very simple form in the very first verse of chapter 15. This faction would become known as the Judaizers, and they are some of the most notorious enemies of the gospel in the New Testament. You'll see their, their hands at work in so many of the different letters that Paul is writing, and, and they are very much opposed to the gospel of grace alone. Now, it's possible for us to give this group the benefit of the doubt. What do I mean? Well, think back early on in our journey here. The gospel did not discriminate. Jews were being saved. We even recall that Pharisees and priests were coming to faith in the gospel. Even Paul, the leading missionary of the church, was a, was a, a, a significant Pharisee at one point in time. Now, again, what do we know about Pharisees? You've been in church at all. You know Pharisees, that a Pharisee's whole identity was wrapped up in being able to keep the Jewish law. I mean, that's, that's who they were. That's, that's what their identity was. That was their career choice. That was who they were in a, in a very real sense. And to protect the law, they even wrapped the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, with additional commands and instructions simply to ensure that they were preserving the law. And the Bible says, do not do this. And they would say, don't do this so that you don't do this. Right? They would add things to it. So, so the Bible says you shouldn't, you shouldn't murder, and they would put things in place to make sure you didn't get, even get close. That's the nature of that pharisaical religion. They saw themselves as the guardians of the Jewish faith. And so here's this group of Pharisees. They've heard the gospel. They've given their life to Jesus. They've met the Jewish Messiah, and now they've been set free from so much of, of that. Now, now, they, now they live under the law of Christ, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And there's so much liberty and freedom in being able to keep the law of Christ rather than worry about the, the ins and outs and the microscopic details of all the Old Testament ceremony and all the Old Testament law. And now, they're free. Hey, but guess what? Old habits die hard right? And so if your whole life and identity was wrapped up in something, and then suddenly something comes along and says you're free, you may embrace the freedom, but what are you going to continually do? You're going to be constantly be drawn back 
to that structure, to that, that rigid uh, expectation, that rigid religion that they kept. And so a Pharisee who gives his life to Christ, the likelihood is he experienced some cognitive dissonance, right? I'm, I'm free, but I'm not free. I, I, I'm free to walk in Christ, but, but this, this old way of life is still calling out to me. And so can you imagine the conflict that's there uh, in, in a Pharisee's mind? And so inside that cognitive distance, the, the mind of a well-meaning Pharisee would eventually become one of the greatest threats to the gospel in the New Testament. Basically, these Judaizers believed in a fundamental error. In order to be, become a Christian, one must first become a Hebrew. And that is repeated over and over again in the New Testament as a constant threat. In order to become a Christian one must first become a Hebrew. And the rationale is simple. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, and so therefore Christianity is, a Jewish, is an expression of, of, of Jewish hope. And so in order to really embrace Christianity, you've got to really be a Jew first. It's easy to see how they got there. Understand this, that, that we as Christians, that we affirm the Old Testament. Amen? We don't throw it out. We don't neglect it. We affirm and believe the Old Testament from front to back. But affirming the Old Testament does not mean that we keep the law in the same way that a, a Jewish person would have kept that law, right? I mean, here's the, here's the real simple practical expectation that's at work here. If you have mold or mildew in your shower, you do not call your pastor to come investigate because I'm busy that day, okay? I'll send a deacon to come investigate it. I don't do mold or mildew investigation, I don't care if it's black mold or purple mold or blue mold or red mold. I don't do it. I will say Clorox is your, is your savior in this event. Go and spray it and kill it and call me in the morning. I don't do that. We don't do that. You handle it. You don't need me to come and bless it because, because if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think if it's, if it's real serious, we've got to burn the house down. Okay? So don't call me. You know, you don't want that expression of, of, of faith in your home. So we affirm the Old Testament, but the Old Testament serves a great purpose. It reminds us that we aren't able to keep the law. It's, it's such a burden. We aren't able to keep it. It shows us our sinfulness and reveals to us our great need for a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we affirm it, but we don't affirm it the same way that a, a Jewish person would. I had a, a, a man that attended our, a church one time, and he was married to an Orthodox Jewish wife. And I talked to him, I said, how in the world can you as a Christian get along with a, a wife who's an Orthodox Jew? And he said, well, we agreed when we got married that I wouldn't convert her if she wouldn't convert me. I thought, that's an interesting strategy. But she would try to maintain Orthodox Judaism in her kitchen. And my friends like eating, eating bacon and sausage, and she's trying to maintain Orthodox Judaism. And it was a constant sort of, uh, sort of conflict there. We don't affirm it the same way. So in the context here, it really helps us to understand what's going on. You've got, in Jerusalem, you've got the centers of Christian thought and culture. The church there in Jerusalem, that's where the church was founded. That was the, the mother church. That's where it all started. And so when, when somebody came from the Jerusalem church, they came with that level of, of authority, they are speaking the language of the mother church. They're speaking on behalf of the mother church. So, so those folks have some level of authority. But then you've got the church at Antioch, which is kind of the missionary base of the church. And that's where all the activity and all the vibrancy and all the, all the action is. 
And so one day we're told that these teachers from Jerusalem showed up with a P.S. to the gospel. And the P.S. was this. In order to become a Christian, you've got to be a Hebrew. Well, wait, you guys, are the, you guys are the trustees of the faith. You guys are the ones where it all started. So you bring clout and authority. And, and suddenly, imagine somebody coming into your Sunday school class, and they speak with all the authority of, that you could imagine, and they come in and they tell you something that you've been doing all along is wrong. Well, you're, you guys are smart enough, you're going to say, yeah, well, that's wrong. But these early believers, man, they don't know what to do with this. This is, this is stirring up a major, major conflict in the church. Acts chapter 15, verse 2, explains it this way. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I love Luke's language here. It was no small debate or dissension. These folks had a throwdown, like a theological throwdown. Like, they, they got into it. That Paul and Barnabas had words. Like, you are, you are corrupting the gospel. You are destroying the gospel. You are taking what we have preached in these Gentile lands, and you are adding something to it that does not exist. And it was so serious. We're told that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders to answer the question. We need an answer to this problem. You see, throughout the early history of the church, you have these gatherings where they would meet to hash out disagreements and discrepancies. These, these, they were called councils, where the church across the known world would come together and they would meet and they would iron out their disagreements and they would iron out their differences so that they could have a, a, a consensus opinion on particular issues. And as doctrine develops, as, as theology grows, as the church grows, there were things like the Trinity. How do we define the Trinity? How do we answer that question? They had a council to, to work that out. This council in Jerusalem is the very first one of these councils, and this council is, is intended to solve the problem of the Judaizers. And Luke only gives us the highlights here. I'm sure it was a, a vibrant meeting as people gathered with differing opinions. But the meeting came to a head, Luke tells us, when Peter stood up and spoke. And here is Peter. We all know Peter. And he rejects the Judaizers with a profound argument. He says in chapter 15, verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Listen to what he says here. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, we've not been able to be good Jews. Why in the world would we expect these Gentiles to become good Jews when we couldn't even do it right? He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. This is earth-shattering. Okay? This is a statement here that is a, it is a stake in the ground. That our salvation is not based on works. That our salvation is based on faith and based on God's grace. It is not by works. Paul would go on to explain it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. And this stake is being driven in the ground right here. So any other gospel that proclaims any other work or any other, any other addition is incorrect. So Peter stands up. Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries, they've been out in Gentile land. They've been preaching the gospel to all these people who've never heard before. And they stand up and they start sharing the stories about this person that got saved and that person that got saved. And the common denominator in all these people who are getting saved is that they were saved by God's grace. 
They were saved by God's grace. They didn't deserve it. They were saved by God's grace. And everybody's listening. Everybody's paying attention. Because what's happening here matters. And then everybody looks at James. Who is James? That's the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. He was called James the Just because of his piety. He was a, uh, he was a scrupulous theologian. When he died, they believed that his knees were callous like those of a camel because of his prayer life. He was a pillar of the church, and he was the moderator of this council. Some said he was the first bishop of Jerusalem. And in tremendous wisdom, he pointed out how all of this was in accordance with what the Old Testament said. And therefore, James comes to a very simple conclusion. He says, therefore, my judgment is this that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but three simple things. We should write, them, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from, being, from that which has been strangled and from blood. Now, is this the, all, the all-inclusive statement, if you'll do this right, everything else will be fine? You know, if you'll just avoid idolatry, avoid fornication, and avoid, uh, you know, uh, avoid a, a medium rare steak, that you'll live the perfect Christian life and everything will be fine. Is that what he's saying here? It's not what he's saying here. Because we open our Bibles and we see there's a whole lot more commands and instructions and things that we need to pay attention to. But what he's giving us here are, are rules for how we ought to get along with people in different positions, in different conditions, in different situations. These aren't all-inclusive statements about Christian morality But these rules that he gives us are the consensus opinion of what all Christians in the first century needed to agree on for the sake of gospel unity. If we're going to continue this work, if we're going to see the gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean to the ends of the earth, these are the things that we need to agree on. And what we find is that while the language may leave us wondering what they're talking about, that these are actually very practical words to even help us today. The first rule, avoid idolatry. Avoid idolatry. This was a much more profound problem in the early church. There were idol temples that you could go to. I don't know of an idol temple that is open and available for us today that you can go and and worship at. I know there's churches of other religions. I know that over here on the bypass, they're building some sort of of little, uh, I don't know what it is, uh, but it ain't Christian, I can tell you that. I don't know if you can go over there and hang out. I don't know. I don't plan on going over there hanging out anytime mainly because of this rule right here. He says, avoid idolatry. You see, Christians could go to the idol temple, the temple of Zeus, the temple of Artemis. They could go to these temples and they could hang out because there was activity there. There there were things going on there. There You could be a people watcher at the temple there, the idol temple. But what James here is saying is that Christians ought to avoid these places of trouble. Again, there's no concern that these idols were real and true gods, but for the Christian who worships the true and living God through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there really wasn't anything to be found by hanging out at the idol's temple. It wasn't like they were there doing mission work. It's not that going on there. And ultimately, it comes down to the question, why muddy the water? Why, If you're a Christian, why hang out at a place where people will look at you and say, I thought you were a Christian. I am. I just like to hang out here at the Temple of Zeus and see what's going on. Why would you do that? Why would you hang out at such a place? This is what James is saying here. Why muddy the water? Because understand this, the idol's temple was not just a place where, Christ, where, where folks gathered for songs and potluck. Man, I go to Zeus's temple because they got good fried chicken there. That's not what's happening at the idol's temple. 
What's happening at the idol's temple is there were all kinds of ample opportunities for Christians to succumb to temptation and stumble into sin. That's what's going on at the idol's temple. There are all kinds of immorality taking place at the idol's temple. So why muddy the water? Why go to such a place where you can stumble into sin and immorality? We would look at this today and say there, there's probably some places that it's, it's probably wise for us to avoid today. Again, we don't have the idol's temple, but I think we can see places where idolatry runs rampant, and we as God's people should probably just, probably just stay away. I remember in college, there was a certain restaurant where the waitresses wore certain clothing, and uh, we all thought they had good hot wings. And uh, we were all at a, at a Christian college, and we were trying to live out our faith and live our testimony out, and we thought, well, that's probably not the best place to go get hot wings, so we'd send our girlfriends to go get the hot wings from, from said establishment. I don't know that that was the wisest thing to do either. But why muddy the water? Oh, I saw you in Bible class. What are you doing at that restaurant? Why confuse the conversation? Avoid those places. Second rule, James says to avoid fornication. This type of immorality was rampant in the first century. It's nothing like it is today. We see the consequences of this in our New Testaments. The church in Corinth was eat up with this stuff to the point that the church was even celebrating it. They were, they were celebrating the, the open-mindedness of the people. That doesn't sound familiar at all. And that open-mindedness was having a severe impact on their credibility, which is why Paul had words for them in his letters Obviously, sexual immorality, fornication is still rampant today, and I believe the principle from Acts 15 still holds true. It has no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot embrace it. We cannot celebrate it. The church that tolerates this is not going to be a healthy church at all because God's design is the best design, and we as God's people should celebrate God's good design. Because inside of biblical marriage, we see the parable of the gospel. God, Paul would go on to describe this parable in the book of Ephesians. Anything other than God's design in this is an affront to the Lord and to the Lord's plan. So why confuse the language? Why muddy the water? Then the third rule. He says to avoid strangled things and blood and, and whatnot. And, and I think the, the simple summation of that is to avoid controversy. Avoid controversy. James mentions these dietary issues. And what he's saying here is there's no need to take action that blatantly offended Jewish converts. Miscommunication and misunderstanding are one thing. I've been on mission trips where there have been some cultural expectations and I missed it. And as a result, there was confusion and there was misunderstanding and those things had to be worked through. But it wasn't intentional. We didn't go up into a mission place to, to purposely offend the people that we were there to, to minister to and serve. And so misunderstandings and miscommunications happen. But when we have blatant disregard for the sensitivities, the sensitivities of others, that is a whole other thing completely. So we should avoid those sort of things as we work through expressing our faith. So how do we bring this into our day and time? As a consequence, I think there's two real simple principles that we need to apply to our lives today. Two very simple principles that we need to apply to our lives today. And the first one is this. We cannot make non-biblical things requirements of others. 
We cannot make non-biblical things requirements of others, particularly when it comes to our expression of faith. This is particularly true when those requirements are built around preferences and traditions. When we close our Bibles and we begin to make decisions based on how we've done things before, when we require things of people that we can't find biblical justification for. Maybe you've heard of churches that require you to read a certain Bible translation. I know you probably have heard of those churches. You've probably been to those churches. Um, maybe you've been to churches where people are required to dress a certain way. And again, I'm not talking about modesty. I'm not talking about biblical principles. I'm, modesty is certainly a biblical principle, but taking that idea of modesty and mandating a particular style. Music is another one. Again, not talking about preferences, but suggesting that a preference is superior to another preference. All of these extras, all these different ideas, they take their toll by introducing legalism in a story where we are saved by grace and not our works. When we inject extra biblical requirements to the gospel, we've taken God's grace and we said, God, your grace is not enough. We not only need grace, we need these other things added to the mix. We not only need grace and, and faith, we've got to have this Bible translation or this particular dress or this particular music. We've got to have this work on top of your grace and our faith. So how do you look at a new believer who's been introduced to God's grace and the sufficiency of Scripture and then give them a rule book of all the extras that we need to add to the list? That's no different than the Jews saying you've got to be a Jew before you can become a, a Christian. Well, I'm not a Jew. Well, then you can't be a Christian. It's no different. Hear me. I am in no way speaking out against your preferences or my preferences. Sometimes we get, we get upset about this. There are some people who prefer the King James Version of the Bible. I could ask for a show of hands. There are people in the room today that would say, I prefer the King James Version of the Bible. And I say, God bless you, you're smarter than the rest of us. Because if you go look at the academic reading level of different translations of the Bible, the, the King James up there, it's like reading Shakespeare. And you're smarter than I am, and I'm, I'm grateful for you. There's nothing wrong with having the preference. Sometimes our preference in that version of the Bible is because we grew up memorizing the King James Version of the Bible. And so those memory verses are in the thou's and the thy's and the these and all those sort of things. There's nothing wrong with that. Hear me correctly in this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with someone who prefers that. But if you condemn someone who uses a modern translation, you have crossed a line because you've added something to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have crossed a significant line. The same way, if you prefer to wear a tie to church, man, God love you, your neck's thinner than mine is. It chokes me. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not right to look down on somebody who chooses otherwise. Because again, you're going to be hard-pressed to find thou shalt wear a necktie in the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments. It's just not there. It's a cultural thing. It's a, it's a cultural expression of, of dress. You see, when we elevate those preferences over and above what the gospel says, we've added things to God's commands, and we've taken a dangerous step towards legalism. The second principle is this. Because we are under grace, I'm about to fly in the face of our American sens sensibilities. So just hold on. Because we are under grace... We gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. 
I take a deep breath here. What James do? James said to avoid blood. There is nothing morally wrong with eating a steak that is cooked to medium. There's nothing wrong with eating a steak that's cooked to rare. I cannot make a moral case against it. In fact, I could even argue that it is a gross sin to eat a steak well done. However, in the first century, your decision to eat that steak with some pink showing might actually be grossly offensive to the Jewish man that you were eating lunch with. It might actually be grossly offensive to that man. And so what this principle says is that I'm willing, I'm willing to eat that steak well done for the sake of my brother who is morally put off by the sight of blood. I'm willing to do that. Now, this is not as big an issue today, obviously. We don't even think about it today, obviously. When you go to the restaurant and they ask you how you want it cooked, obviously. I like when they say chicken and, they, you know, somebody orders steak and I order chicken. And they'll say, how, how do they want it done? I say, I want mine well done. I don't want any pink showing. This is ultimately all about limiting my liberty for the sake of other people's faith. And as Christians, we desperately need to learn this behavior. Because this is where our American identity can sometimes run afoul of our Christian identity. As Americans, we cherish our liberties, we cherish our freedoms. However, in Christ, I have to recognize that if my freedom causes someone else to stumble, then I need to gladly limit my freedom for the sake of that brother because I don't want that brother to stumble because of anything I did. But I'm free to do it. It doesn't matter. If my brother stumbles because of my exercise of freedom, I should gladly limit my freedom for the sake of my brother. Paul brings perfect balance to this in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, Galatians deals heavily with the Judaizers. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Amen, we were called to freedom. This is great news. We have freedom. But he goes on to say, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Meaning that I should be willing to limit my freedom to serve my brother or my sister. We are free in Christ. We are free from the dead religion of the past. We are free from our sin. We are free to make decisions in accordance with the scriptures and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But the exercise of that freedom must make itself manifest in such a way that I'm loving and serving my neighbor. This has so many daily applications. Here's just a real simple, practical application that has real world teeth today. We love these things, don't we? Right? Everybody loves a mask. We're wearing them more and more. I'm, for a while there, nobody was wearing a mask. Now in public, people are starting to wear these things more and more. I've not met a soul yet. There may be somebody out there who says, I love wearing my N95 mask. I don't know. If you work in the medical field, I don't know that you just love that N95 mask. Uh, I've read somebody, some lady had sores on her nose from where she had to wear her in a mask all the time. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt wear a mask during a global pandemic. It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't say anything about masks, as a matter of fact, that, that I could really find. You're not going to find a, a biblical mandate for wearing this or, or not wearing this. 
So it's not like we as Christians can say, yeah, well, well, I disagree because the Bible says I'm not supposed to wear these. And you're not also going to be able to say, you know, I agree because the Bible tells me I'm supposed to wear these. Guess what? This means that to decide whether to wear this or not wear this, it's not left up to the government. It's left up to you. You got to answer some questions. You got to decide. You got you to come to conclusion on your own. How do you get there? Here's, my, here's how I answer this based on Christian freedom. When do I wear this? I wear this when a private property owner asks me to, to come onto their property. I do. Why? Because it's their property, and I'm a guest. And if they say, put this on in order to come into my shop or to come into my home or to come into this, that, or the other, I do. Because they have authority over their home. They have authority over their property. And if I don't have to go on the property, but if I want to, then I feel like it's appropriate for me to limit my freedom because of the request that's been made of me. That's, a, that's, a, that's how I come to that conclusion. Secondly, if I'm having a close conversation with someone who's wearing one, right? Because that person has some concerns. I may not share those same concerns, but I love that person. And so therefore, because I love that person, I'm willing to put this on because they're clearly concerned about it. I'm willing to limit my freedom for the sake of that person who's have, who has those concerns. I'm willing to do that because I love my brother or sister. If I'm somewhere where people are clearly uncomfortable, like it's okay for me to be willing to, to, to lay that freedom down. And again, I'm not telling you that you have to come to that same conclusion. I'm just telling you how I get to that conclusion because of that principle. I must be willing to restrict my freedom for the love and concern for my brother. I must be willing to eat the well-done steak because of my Jewish friend who's put off by the sight of blood. I don't love well-done steaks. I don't like them at all. you got to put Heinz 57 sauce on well-done steaks. But I'm willing to do it if that medium steak causes my brother to stumble. I'm willing to do that. It's a freedom that I'm willing to lay down for the sake of somebody else. So you absolutely have the freedom in, in mind to, to make the choice in accordance with uh, with conscience and conviction, but here is the summation of this Christian principle, right? You don't have to, let me say this right. You don't have the freedom to be a jerk to somebody that doesn't share your convictions. Okay? You have the freedom in Christ to surrender freedoms for the sake of that person who's got those concerns. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, we think about legalism and where this kind of hostility starts. It never starts from a bad place. In fact, it generally starts from a, a good place. A desire to maintain a commitment to truth, a desire to maintain a commitment to orthodox faith. The problem is that it rarely stops there. One of Satan's greatest tricks is having the ability to take something that starts with good intentions and turning it into demonic deception. My heart hurts for my King James Version only brothers and sisters. Not those who prefer it and recognize the freedom of others to choose something else, but those who developed unbiblical notions about origins and authenticity. 
There are pastors in our community who would consider me a heretic because I prefer the ESV or the CSB to the King James Version. I would be considered a heretic, and there are pastors who would say I'm not a Christian because I don't believe that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible that counts. And that's the reality of our community today. And while that is perhaps the most blatant example we see on a consistent basis, I think we all bring all these little thoughts to the table. You ever look down on someone for what they wore to church? Ever criticized a piece of music for something other than the content of its lyrics? My friend's roxology is just as valid as your doxology, even though hers was honky-tonk and yours is not. I didn't like it, but it's, it's, it expressed the same praise to God, even though it sounded differently. I don't have a right to judge that because it's a little bit different from what I'm used to. It's just as valid. Winston Churchill told of a British family that went out for a picnic by a lake. In the course of the afternoon, the five-year-old son fell into the water. Unfortunately, none of the adults could swim. And so as the child was bobbing up and down, everyone on the shore was in a panic. There was a passerby who saw the situation. Great risk to himself. Jumped in the water fully clothed, managed to reach the child just before he went under. He was able to bring the child safe and sound to his mother. And most of us would think in a situation like that that the mother would express profound gratitude for the man rescuing her child. Instead of thanking the stranger for his heroic efforts, the mother snapped at the rescuer, Where's his cap? Somehow, in all the commotion, the boy's cap had gotten lost. But instead of rejoicing in her son's deliverance, the woman found something about which to be critical. It's very easy for us to be like that woman, especially as we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Somehow, others are never quite right. There's always something more that's needed before they measure up. That attitude, it's not only bad for us, it's also deadly for the church. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. Lord, we understand that as, as Americans, we cherish our liberties and our freedoms. But we also understand that sometimes in Christ, it's important for us to limit those freedoms for the sake of others. Help us, God, to have wisdom today to know when we should and when we shouldn't. Help us to know when, those, when there's those battles that need to be fought and then there's those that don't. Um, Paul and Barnabas had to get into heated arguments with people who were preaching a false gospel. Um, at the same time, the church had to come to a consensus, a, 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 an idea of, of how we should relate to one another. And ultimately, the law of Christ is we relate to one another out of love and concern and care. And so, Lord, help me as I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, help me to love my neighbor as I love myself. And if that means I limit my freedom, then I do so. If it means that, uh, that those preferences that I hold a little too dear, that I'm willing to set those aside for the sake of gospel truth. And so, Lord, help us now in these moments to really look at our heart, look in the mirror, and see if there's those places in our life where we don't quite, we add, we add some things to the, to the requirements. May we lay those aside today and have our hearts and minds focused on Christ. Lord, if there's any here today that are not walking with you, with you I pray that today they would meet the true Jesus, the Jesus who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, and that they would be radically transformed today by the, by the good news of Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. 
We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.